Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Well, this was an exciting weekend for me just past. I was in the midst of our family's annual Father's Day family reunion gathering in Syracuse, New York, where I got to stay up till 3 a.m. doing a two-hour interview with Richard Surrett on Coast to Coast AM radio. And afterwards, I got to thinking once again about why some of us are given a glimpse of the other side, only to be sent back to live with visions of paradise in our memory banks. If heaven is where God wants us, and if this is only a matrix reality anyway, then why are we denied early entry to the place we all want to be? Clearly, we are sent back as messengers, a title heretofore given to angels to do additional laboring in the fields. But we're not angels. I'm not worthy, we tell ourselves, and so we sit on our hands for years sometimes and say little or nothing about what we know to be true about the hereafter. The thing is, there are folks out there, uh, folks uh, desperate to be uh, for the answers our near-death experience could possibly provide for them. Um, I discovered this as a chaplain, but it's not that we're priests or preachers. We're just witnesses, and not perfect witnesses at that. We're not bodhisattvas who've sworn not to go into the light until all humanity can join us. Buddhists believe uh, some of these saints reincarnate until they can bring the rest of us to enlightenment. But no, we're more likely some dude or dudess who fell off their motorcycle or drowned in a lake or had a heart attack during their morning jog. We're more likely lawyers or Walmart greeters than, than monks or prophets, just ordinary men and women who by accident get to leave our bodies for a few moments to catch a glimpse of the true light. On Coast to Coast, I had a a moment to mention Plato's allegory about where we are in this matrix reality. Plato's story about the way we are imprisoned, chained in a cave, staring at a screen, is is profoundly a prophecy of addiction to screens today. Uh, Plato is a great theologian in his way. They They always call him a philosopher, but he is he is really more than a philosopher because he's talking about the other side as well. Is deeply wise, and he's, he's sitting there in 400 BC, uh, and he understood both prehistory because he describes Atlantis, the stories he'd heard about uh, the ancient prehistory uh, settlement of Atlantis, and um, and he understands our limited perspective in our matrix world. Is it true even to today? So, in his allegory of the cave. He says that we are imprisoned. It's it's like we are imprisoned from childhood. And it's interesting, he says, from childhood, not from birth, because at birth we still have a foot in both worlds. We still remember where we came from. But from early childhood, uh, we are chained uh, so that our legs and necks are fixed, according to Plato, forcing us to gaze at the wall in front of us. Um the wall being today uh, could be your cell phone or your uh, TV. And uh, we're not able to look around. Uh, we can't look at each other. We can't look at the cave uh, 
or ourselves, except for this wall directly in front of us. And then he says, behind us, um, which we where we cannot see, there are uh, people that are creating shadows on the wall. There's a fire, which is the projector of his day, and then uh, puppets or mannequins uh, or artworks that are flashed in front of uh, the fire so that the shadow is cast on the wall. The prisoners can't see uh, what's happening uh, behind them. They can only see the shadows. And uh, they hear the sounds of the people talking, and they th- it echoes off the walls, and they th- the prisoners believe these sounds come from the shadows. And uh, Plato suggests the shadows are, are uh, to the prisoners, the only reality, because they've never seen anything else. They don't realize that what they are seeing are the shadows of objects in front of a fire. Anyway, uh, the artists who are doing this use light and shadows uh, to teach the dominant doctrines of a time and a place, according to Plato, including uh, political realities as well. Also, Plato says, few humans will ever escape from this cave. This is not uh, an easy task to get out of the cave, and only a true philosopher with decades of preparation uh, would be able to leave the cave and go up the steep incline into the light. Uh, most humans will live at the bottom of the cave, and a few, a small few, will uh, be the major artists that project the shadows with the with the use of human-made light. They're, I guess, the wheelers and dealers of the of the day. And the only exception, and uh, Plato doesn't mention it in the cave description, but he l- later on talks about it at the last part of the of his uh, book called The Republic. Endy ears get to see the light. Then he says, if you come out of the cave, what's it like? He said, um, if one of the prisoners gets freed, they'd look around, they'd see the fire, the light would hurt their eyes. And uh, they wouldn't understand the objects casting the shadows. Um, if the prisoner was told that he, what he was seeing is real instead of the other versions of reality he sees on the wall, he wouldn't believe it. Um, Plato says the freed prisoners would turn away and run back to what they are accustomed to. They would run back into the cave. They wouldn't want to, uh, to uh, hurt their eyes by seeing the truth. But, Plato goes on, what if someone should drag them by force up the rough ascent, uh, the steep way up, and uh, until they couldn't avoid uh, going out into the light of the sun, out of the cave and into reality? Prisoner would be angry, Plato says, in pain, he says. It would only, and that pain would only worsen when the, when the light of the sun overwhelms their eyes and blinds them. But, Slowly, uh, the eyes will adjust to the light of the sun. First, that prisoner could see only shadows. Then he can begin to see the reflections of people and things and water. And then later on, um, uh, eventually, look up and see the stars and the moon at night until finally he can look upon the sun itself. And Plato says after he can look straight at the sun, Only then is he able to reason about it and reason about what is. The movie The Matrix 
in our uh, in our culture today uh, reflects Plato's idea of the cave in a more chemically induced way. But uh, the red pill and the blue pill uh, offer Neo the choice of which way to go. So we've got two groups of people here that Plato's describing. One, those people who break from their chains, those few who can turn and see the light on their own, the ones who take the red pill to make that Matrix movie reference. Or, two, by accident, people who experience an NDE. And our reactions are often the same as Plato describes someone who might be dragged kicking and screaming to the light. Uh, fear, confusion, being overwhelmed by the evidence of consciousness and love that, that stands behind everything, that infuses everything, and we just don't know it. People rationalize their NDEs when they've had them. I had, I've had many, many conversations in the hospital with people who who go this this direction, and uh, and will tell me maybe for the first time uh, an experience that they had 20 or 30 years ago. And they will say, uh, what I saw was a gift to me, but it wouldn't make a difference to anybody else. That's what I thought, that, that uh, really, uh, uh, I'll just have to keep this to myself. Perhaps they got burned in a bad experience where they tried to tell someone about it and the person refused to hear it or said it was the anesthesia or gave them some other uh, chemically or uh, physically induced response. They're wrong about that, of course. Uh, and the response I've had to this show, NDE Radio, is a, is proof of that. How, how people are fascinated by these stories and enlightened by them as well. So, recently, to jump to another aspect of this story, I came across an article in the New Yorker that has a lot to say on this very subject, although they didn't, uh, ascribe it to NDEs. It's, um, what it did was redefine something called the Rashomon effect in a way that makes every NDE out there as important uh, as it could be, uh, uh, an important part of the whole. The Rashomon effect, and this is the older definition, occurs, and this is from Wikipedia, when an event is given contradictory interpretations by the individuals involved. The effect is named after Akira Kurosaka's um, 1950 film titled Rashomon, hence the, the name. It's about a murder, and there are four people that are involved as witnesses to the murder. And uh, it describes from one to the next to the next what happened. And it's clear um, that because of the motives and the occurrences and the reporting and the circumstances and everything that goes on and the personals the, the each witness's egotistical involvement in the event that these stories are entirely different the rashomon effect has been defined as a modern in a modern academic context is a study of the nature of knowledge of ways of thinking and knowing and remembering and and that basically what it does is it makes you think that any witness in a trial is probably, uh, for the most part, wrong. Anyway, that's the old idea of the Rashomon effect. 
that witness stories contradict one another because everyone's ego makes us all unreliable witnesses. And, um, but it's gotten used in this article, uh, or redefined in this article in a new way. The, uh, the article is in, in the February 19th, 2019 New Yorker. It was written by Natalie Walshover. And the title is A Different Kind of Theory of Everything, which is an intriguing title, which is why I read the article. And in it, the writer suggests that if a different, uh, that if different explanations wind up with the correct ending, then they can all be true, or at least true-ish, if I can coin a 17th century word that may in fact be coming back into use these days. But in her article, Miss Walshover was referring to the late theoretical physicist uh, Richard Feynman, brilliant mathematician and physicist. And she writes, in 1964, during a lecture at Cornell University, the physicist Richard Feynman articulated a profound mystery about the physical world. He told his listeners to imagine two objects, each gravitationally attracted to the other. How, he asked, should we predict their movements? Feynman identified three approaches, each involving a different belief about the world. The first approach used Newton's law of gravity, according to which the objects exert a pull on each other. The second imagined a gravitational field extending through space, which the objects distort. And the third applied the principle of least action, which holds that each object moves by following the path that it takes the least energy in the least amount of time. All three approaches produce the same correct prediction. You know, whether you're using um, uh, Newton or you're using Einstein or you're using uh, uh, the path of least resistance theory, they were three equally useful descriptions of how gravity works. All right, so... To take that out of the physical for a moment and see what they're saying, let's take a religious uh, idea. If religious truth is told in four different ways, say, for example, the story of Jesus is told in four different Gospels, there are different details, there's different emphasis in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's version of the story, yet they all work to get the believer to the same place. An even more extreme example of how two radically different tellings could both be true in in fact is uh, something I've told you guys about before. The physicist Gerald Schroeder, who by through mathematics and through the distortion of time in the Big Bang, came to the amazing conclusion that the Big Bang of creation could have happened both in six days, as the Bible describes it, depending on your perspective on where you're standing inside or outside of the Big Bang, or if you're within the Big Bang, 14 billion years went by. Therefore, both the creationist story and the evolutionist story can be true. And that is determined, according to Feynman, by the fact that they wind up with the same conclusion. Here we are. There we were. Here we are. So now, let's take this a step further and look at uh, uh, how these stories apply to near-death experiences. Now, there aren't four of these. We have more than 770 near-death experiences in the United States 
every day. Every day. They've done surveys on this. 774, I think it was, was the figure. And some, many of them have veridical evidence in them. Veridical evidence being that thing that you, that you see, that you hear, that you realize, uh, when you're out of your body, you travel through a wall, you hear the family talking about your operation, or you go down, um, and listen in on a phone conversation, or you go outside of the hospital and on the windowsill you see a, a sneaker. All of these stories, uh, many of them famous and now, are uh, examples of veridical evidence. How would you know that if this was all an imaginary thing, if this was the dying of the optical nerve? No, that wouldn't that wouldn't be true. And so of these 770 NDEs, many of them contain such evidence that they are real. Um, these stories are very personal. These stories are so involved in the person's own life story and adventure. Uh, many of them um, are events where you are out of your body, but you're traveling to see or or learn about your family. When you go down the tunnel and into the light, there are stories about meeting deceased relatives, uh, deceased pets even, uh, having personal conversations with Jesus or whoever about your life and where you're going to go, and then now you have to go back and live it. Um, there aren't four of these, like the gospel stories. There are thousands, millions of them, and... Uh, and yet, each one of them, as personal as they can be, contain an element of the truth that they should all be taken, um, I believe. They should all be listened to. They should all be taken in and processed by a person who has not had an NDE in a way that they can begin to perceive, almost with the clarity of the experiencer themselves, what the heck this is all about. Uh, Walshover in her article about uh, uh, Feynman says, and quotes Feynman as saying, I always found that mysterious, I, the, and I do not know the reason why it is that the correct laws of physics are expressible in such a tremendous variety of ways. They seem to be able to get through several wickets at the same time. What he says there is exactly true for the collection of NDEs uh, that, that are going on on a daily basis. Um, the author of that article also quotes Anima Arkani Hamed, a physicist at the Institute for Advanced Study, whom she calls one of today's leading theoreticians. And he told her, the miraculous shape-shifting property of the laws is the single most amazing thing I know about them. It must be a huge clue to the nature of ultimate truth. There must be a huge clue to the nature of ultimate truth. Let me read that whole quote to you again. The miraculous shape-shifting property of the laws, well, the laws he's talking about are the laws of physics, but we're talking about the content of the laws of these stories of NDEs. It's the single most amazing thing I know about them. It must be a huge clue to the nature of the ultimate truth. 
Well, listeners may think I'm way out of line to find parallels between overlapping laws of physics and the multiple observations and reports of NDEs, but I think the Rashomon effect, her definition of it, her new uh, definition of Rashomon, provides a collective approximation of ultimate truth. Of course, that's why my show, NDE Radio, uh, is is popular, I think, and uh, and I know that Coast to Coast um, is as well. Now, I think we have time, yes, to talk about something else that uh, was in the physicist article and uh, how it relates to a near-death experience that I'll tell you about. So let me continue for a moment with this New Yorker article. The author writes, Some researchers are attempting to wean physics off of space-time in order to pave the way toward this deeper theory. In 2013, Nima Akani Hamed and Jaroslav Trinka discovered a reformulation of scattering amplitudes. Now bear with me here because this will sound complicated for a minute. A reformulation of scattering amplitudes that makes reference to neither space nor time. They found that the amplitudes of certain particle collisions are encoded in the volume of a jewel-like geometric object which they dubbed the amplitude hedron. Amplitude hedron. Ever since, they and dozens of others, other researchers have been exploring this new geometric formulation of particle scattering amplitudes, hoping that it will lead away from our everyday space-time bound conception to some grander explanatory structure. Now, I ain't no particle physicist, but I would like to humbly suggest that consciousness be introduced into this equation. And maybe this is what they're driving at without using the word. A fundamental of the created world is duality, and yet matter, antimatter, um, to, down to the ones and zeros of our own computers, it, it reflects duality. That's maybe just a reflection on the cave wall. Yet NDEs teach unifying consciousness is the basis of everything. What NDEs teach us is that consciousness is infused throughout the creation, throughout the universe. And when I read about this jewel-like geometric object, this amplitude hedron, outside of space-time, I flashed on, in particular, um, the psychoanalyst Carl Jung's story of what he saw during his near-death experience, as he described it, in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, his autobiography. And I went and I looked up uh, a quote from him on this. Uh, this is from Carl Jung. First of all, uh, to, just to give you a preview, he goes out into space. He's looking back at the Earth, and this is pre-space exploration. It's pre-satellite. But he describes the Earth perfectly, uh, this giant, beautiful blue ball, he describes it the way the astronauts uh, sitting up in the space station describe it, using the same terminology. And then, uh, as he drifts away from his view of the Earth, he says, something new entered my vi- field of vision. A short distance away, I saw in space 
a tremendous dark block of stone like a meteorite. It was about the size of my house, or even bigger. It was floating in space, and I myself was floating in space. I had seen several stones on the coast of Bengal like this. They were blocks of tawny granite, and some of them had been hollowed out into temples. My stone was one such giant dark block. At as entrance led into a, its entrance led into a small antechamber, and to the right of the entrance, a black Hindu sat silent in lotus posture upon a stone bench. He wore a white gown, and I knew that he expected me. Well, you know, this is, I couldn't help but think that this geometric outside of time and space that is described by these physicists could be uh, a manifestation or the temple itself could be a manifestation of, um, of the uh, Akashic record, the physical manifestations of collective wisdom. I've always thought Jung might have experienced a mystic vision of the Akashic record, uh, the, the seed of collective wisdom. Um, but it's just easier to see it in terms of light than a granite structure. Although granite, of course, is vibration just like everything else. The Bible makes wisdom itself uh, conscious of perso- personifying her. It refers to wisdom as her. And uh, I thought I might conclude with this description of uh, wisdom as light. This is Sophia Wisdom from uh, The Wisdom of Solomon. For she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness. Although she is but one, she can do all things, and while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets, for God loves nothing so much as the person who lives with wisdom. She is more beautiful than the sun and excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with the light, she is found to be superior, for it is succeeded by the night, but against wisdom, evil does not prevail. She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. I think the point of what I've been driving at through this show through this convoluted uh, discussion of um, of people who've had experiences but haven't talked about them, Plato's cave and the Matrix world, and then this discussion of the Rashomon effect, is to conclude that we all we all experiencers and those who've had told to them stories of experiences should be out there trying to change the consciousness of the people still chained in that cave, staring at their screens and wondering why. We are in a desperate time. I think you all realize that. that The uh, population has grown from a little more than 2 billion when I was born to pushing 8 billion today. And the wildlife is dying off, gone by 60% in some areas. The insect life is dying off. The uh, oceans are filling with plastic. 
the only way we're going to overcome this, I believe, is not through technological breakthroughs so much as a as a change of heart, a bearing of the heart, uh, and uh, an incorporation and a channeling of God's love through to the world itself, the earth itself, and to one another. And until we can do that, we are on a path to um, <clears throat> closing this chapter in um, civilization's history. So I would urge you personally not only to, uh, well, get in, get in touch with me and, and uh, send me your, uh, your stories, your NDEs, um, just to leewitting at gmail.com. Uh, would be uh, would be wonderful because then I'll be able to tell them uh, to to the listeners. But talk to your friends, talk to your family, tell all the people that you know about what you saw because this is a testimony. We are getting 770 uh, testimonials a day potentially in this country alone to go out and uh, change the the heart of the world, and um, it's going to be much more powerful, I think, than organized religion. If we put our mind to it. Well, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to uh, listening. And if you'd like to hear this show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. For information on IANS and the upcoming conference in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, check out their website at iands.org. And join us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.